Welcome to the Saving UX podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Kriegel, and I believe that UX is in trouble. And there are lots of people doing the work right now, but I think that the amount of impact that we're having, especially compared to the number of us doing this work, one is not what it could be, and I'd hypothesize it's worse than what it used to be. And saving UX is not just about you know saving my job, this career that I put a quarter of a century in. It really is about maximizing the benefit that we add to the organizations that we work with and the people that they serve. I believe that when UX is well applied to meaningful problems, we can have a huge impact, positive impact on the world. Now, today I have the great pleasure to uh, introduce Debbie Levitt. Uh, Debbie is a prolific content creator and a UX veteran of 25 years. She's a, the CXO of Delta CX, which focuses on corporate consulting and training and the author of two books, uh, The DevOps ICU, Improving the Process and Results by Correctly Integrating UX, as well as Delta CX, The Truth About How Valuing Customer Experience Can Transform Your Business. Debbie, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jeremy. It's always good to see you. Uh, good to see you too. So the last time we had uh, this conversation was on Lee's podcast. But let's start, in, in case folks haven't seen that, how would you assess the current state of UX? Does it need saving? Or are we doing great? We're definitely not doing great. Uh, if we were doing great, I wouldn't be writing books and speaking everywhere and doing my own YouTube channel and, and populating LinkedIn. And all. I've been on a giant mission for years. And I think if UX were doing great, my work would just be rolling in endlessly and I wouldn't feel like I have to save a drowning victim. So what, <laughs> drowning victim, I love that. So what would you say, let's go with that analogy. What would you say are the heaviest weights that are, have been cemented to UX's proverbial feet. Yeah, it's really uh, so many things. I, I tell people, I think it's a, a, you know, the old proverbial wheel. It's a hub and spoke problem. At the core of it, in my opinion, is the misunderstanding and lack of understanding around UX. People don't understand what we do, who we are, how we got here, why we do this, what we're doing. They just see pretty screens, so they think pretty screens, and then they think anybody can make pretty screens, just hire someone, with a good visual design portfolio and they'll probably be good at everything else. And so the spokes that you get out of that are things like everybody's a designer and just do something really fast, whether that's minimum viable product or lean whatever, lean anything, fake lean, let's put it that way, because not Toyota's lean, but fake lean. And we have all of these weird spokes that at the, the core is, we don't really understand what UX is. And I made a slide recently for my new talk and I showed kind of the little circles I usually show for, there they go, user-centered design. And basically, I typically show all of the phases of a user-centered design or human-centered design process. And one of the phases is interaction design and prototyping. And I drew a tiny smiley face there and I wrote next to it in quotes, UX. And I said to the audience, because my first audience who saw this this year was agile coaches and scrum masters at a well-known financial company. And my second audience who saw it this year, I was the keynote at a marketing conference. So again, non-UX audience. And I said, if you think UX are wireframes and prototypes and screens, then you can see why someone like me and some other people are trying to shift to the term CX. Because if UX is 
wireframing attractive branded screens, then holy cats, there is this whole other world out there that I wish people understood. And it starts with research and working from what we know about users, customers, potential customers, trial users, uh, whoever they might be, rather than things we are guessing about these people or going into workshops and going, I think people do this, pew, 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 put workshops as one of, co-design workshops and design by committee as one of those spokes on my wheel of evil. So let me dive into that. You know, this has come up a lot, this notion that people still don't understand the value of UX. And in some way, this still perplexes me a bit because, you know, UX is not new. It's been around for a long time. Certainly it's not. been talked about for a long yes. time. Uh, so why is it that we still have this lack of understanding? Is that is that on us? Like what part of, do we play as, as UX practitioners in that? How do we do better at it? And, and what are the maybe some other factors from your perspective that contribute? Yeah, from my perspective, there's a whole bunch of factors here, and I think it's it's difficult to find blame or point fingers, but one thing I do think that we in UX can do better is stand up and speak out. There were some books that came out in the 2010s that were not good for UX. They work against good UX. They work against good collaboration. They work against UX's autonomy, and many of us read them and thought they were garbage but we said nothing. We didn't go leave a bad review on Amazon. We didn't go tell all the people we knew that this was a crap book or a bad model. We were just quiet because we're nice people. We have empathy, right? We have empathy and we care and we're nice people. And we didn't tell people that these books are bad and these models are crap. And now as more and more crap models come up, we're all surprisingly quiet. And I think that that has really, now that's not the cause of all of this, but I think that that is another spoke on the wheel where we have not spoken up when there have been these unfortunate perceptions of UX, these weird books that have come out and these models. And then of course they, they become mainstream or they get forced on us at our jobs and everyone's going, why am I doing this? This is not how UX is done. And someone says, well, but there's a book about it. There's a book that says this is how UX is done. And I'm saying, where's all my peeps to stand up and say that book was crap. We didn't stand up and say enough. So I, I know people are going to just want to know what you think the, the, the crap models are, though I don't, probably want to spend maybe a little less on, on, on bashing those and maybe shifting to what should we be thinking about? What, what in your opinion, what would be the good models, the positive models? Sure. Now, I call the negative models aspirologies because I like to say they aspire to greatness, but they're really missing it. And to me, they don't deserve enough credibility to be called methodologies. Um, I've got a great slide that I'm looking at that you can't see, which um, I'm going to jump to because I, I just want to quickly say, this is what I've been saying to audiences, these are the hallmarks of aspirologies. Codependency, UX seems to need everybody to do their job with and for them disrespect of teammates time workshops and exercises require teammates to stop what they're doing for hours or days reliance on assumptions aspirologies prioritizing speed over quality which of course increases uh, business and project risk number four giving specialized uh, ux work to non-specialists again usually in workshops and exercises where magically all of a sudden any cx or ux work can be done by 
anybody, regardless of their experience, expertise, skill, talent, proficiency, or knowledge. But we don't do that anywhere else. And you ever notice that there are no sticky note workshops where we all decide the back-end database architecture? Uh, number five, democratizing and decentralizing CX is completely fake. And we can tell this because we don't have the cross-functional team making decisions in other domains. Um, and so no, nobody else is giving up their power, but they're asking us to give up ours. Number six, another hallmark of Asperology is innovation and solution theater. How many world premiere, never before seen ideas have come out of these workshops? How many solutions were wrong, non-viable, guessed, and things like that? Number seven, Asperologies love to vote for the winner. Even though UX has wonderful processes and tasks in user-centered design and human-centered design that help us find the right executions of the right ideas, somehow in Asperology land, we are all voting for the winner. You've never posted designs at your desk back when you had one and said everyone come vote on the winner. Uh, I think I'm up to eight emotional outcomes everybody enjoyed the workshop, but yet there's no budget figures, there's no ROI figures, there's no success criteria, boo. And I think I'm up to number nine, enough buzzwords to pretend it's UX. You're gonna hear about customer journey maps, personas, problem solving, prototyping, testing, but for the most part, it's building blocks and theater. So um, anything that fits the, that, uh, those are my hallmarks of asperologies. If it fits that, I'm probably against it, and I think it's hurting our industry. Because if everybody can do UX through these wonderful asperologies, why hire Jeremy? Well, if that were true, I think that would be fine. You know, I think, uh, again, it's about how are we, are we creating great products for people, not do we have these people called UX not. who are well employed? But I think the reality is that we're not creating great products. So no, for and, sure. and we're not using the, the other people aren't picking up the, the, the skills and the methodologies that UX has developed to, to for the benefit of people and organizations. And I don't need them to. I, I don't need them to. I don't believe everybody needs to be trained to do what I can do Agreed. because not everybody can do what I can do. Part of it is skill and training and part of it are natural personality traits and, and things that I'm naturally good at that make UX a good career choice for me, but would make uh, uh, development, coding, DevOps a bad career choice for me. There, there are some things that go well with, with people's personalities. Got it. So are the positive elements just the opposite? of the things you just described for Asperology or do you describe positive models uh, differently? I think in general, positive models would give us, uh, I mean, my main thing that I'm cheering for this year is accountability. I've never been held accountable at any job I've ever had. And I believe that if CX or UX were actually held accountable, everything would change. Everything would change. Uh, boot camps would have to change. If you were going to go into a job and actually be judged on how well you did your job and how well you knew the techniques and approaches and best practices and core foundational concepts, boot camps would have to change or die. Even some university programs would have to change or die. So as soon as we're held accountable at our jobs and somebody says, hey, 
This project semi-failed or completely failed in the eyes of our customer. We did not deliver quality to our customer. Now we have to look at the root causes. Which aspect of this was engineering's fault? Which aspect of this might have been product's fault? Which aspect of this was UX's fault? Not because we want to point fingers, but because we want to fix this and improve internal processes. So far, I so rarely see anybody going to UX and saying, UX, your work ended up not that great this time around. What happened? Hey, I'm, now either we're going to learn this person isn't good at their job, which is a call to arms or a call to action. Maybe we shouldn't get armed just yet. Or we're going to learn that UX didn't get the time, the budget, the headcount, the resources that they needed, in which case people will be under pressure to actually give us those. And I think if heads could roll when the UX were bad, we would see all kinds of changes. A lot of Asperology workshops would go away. A lot of non-UX people overruling UX people and circumventing them and trying to make UX decisions without anybody skilled in this area would go away because they would be held accountable. I have worked at jobs, and I'm sure you have too, where an engineering lead or somebody overruled UX, they went with an idea that they had, and it ended up a freaking technicolor disaster. That person magically never seemed to be in any trouble. That person didn't get uh, HR paperwork filed on them. That person wasn't put on a performance improvement plan. That person wasn't disciplined or fired or, or anything. I've never seen that happen. If you have, that sounds great. But I think that I think that we have to be held accountable for what we do, and people trying to make decisions in our domain and us making decisions in our domain should be held accountable. I see you thinking. I'll let you get it. Yeah, so I guess what I've seen in a lot of organizations, and I've heard stories from others, is, well, UX certainly gets blamed for a lot of things. Usually it's as a bottleneck to engineering. You know, engineering can't proceed because the design work hasn't been done. And that could be due to any number of things, as you said, lack of resources, lack of time. Uh, They were usually not given, no one ever, no one planned with us. So if they didn't give us the, if no one asked us what time we needed and they guessed, how are we ever going to get the right amount of time? I've worked at very famous companies who said at Project Kickoff, Debbie, you get two days to give us final wireframes because you draw screens. So we wanted to be generous with time. (laughs) That's generous. Two days. That was generous. So have you been able to effectively navigate those to get the time you needed to do to do a good job, basically? And how, how do you manage those conversations? How could other people approach that differently so that they could have the opportunity to do great work? Well, there's two answers there because there's two questions there. So number one, the only time that I have ever been able able to uh, plan my own time, estimate my own time, prioritize my own tasks and work, do things in the order in which I thought they should be done, and do a thorough, high-quality job was when I worked through my own agency, because Delta CX is an agency, or when I've worked at someone else's agency. When I've been brought in as a freelancer to an agency where they go, holy crap, you're the UX expert, just tell us how much time you need to make this amazing. Go, yeah, that's a three-month project, it's a six-month project, yeah, whatever. So I found in my agency world that I I am being come to, I'm being treated as the expert and the knowledgeable person who can approach this with strategy, technique, and and proficiency. 
And when I've worked in corporate jobs, either as a full-time employee or as a contractor, I am often treated as a pair of hands or as a just wireframe what our competitor does. Now, I know that's not the only experience people are having, but based on the conversations I'm having, it seems that it's quite frequent that UX is not seen as a true problem-finding and problem-solving partner. We are typically seen as, can you just wireframe this idea someone had so engineer engineering can build it. And that's a problem because then we're being seen as production designers. And those of us who are your age and my age remember the difference between a production designer and various other roles in UX, the UX researcher, the architect, the content strategist, even a, a visual designer is not necessarily a production designer. And I think the problem is that most people believe we are just production designers and it's some of it is left over from uh, people's perceptions of web design. Well, you know, web designers, we, you know, web designers, we tell them what people want and what the client wants and what the website should be and they just make it. I think that's what these UX people do and nobody has updated that definition. We're not production designers. Anyone watching this, thanks for watching. <laughs> Is there any difference in those conversations when you're talking to a client who wants you to come in and play a production role versus when you're talking to someone who wants you to come in and advise and have a more strategic role. Are, are there differences there in how they're coming to you and how you're able to relate to them? Are you like in the first conversation you go, oh, I, I know what this is and uh, you, you play it that way? Or I don't know, it's just, I'm just curious here. Yeah, in my personal experience, speaking for nobody else, whenever I've ended up at a job that treated me as a production designer, which has included jobs in the last five or 10 years of my career, and we're not talking about a long time ago, these were jobs where in the interview or multiple interviews, I was told, we absolutely need your skill. We absolutely need your expertise. We absolutely need your blah, blah, blah. And this was especially when I lived in San Francisco, where I was able to develop a bit of a reputation for certain specializations and, and abilities. And, and it got to the point where I didn't need a portfolio or a resume. People called me and said, we heard about you. Are you free? Okay, great. Um, and so every job was presented to me as holy poop on a stick. We need what you can do. So of course I went into these jobs and in some cases I only stayed a month because I realized they just wanted me to make landscape wireframes of somebody else's portrait wireframes or in another situation, um, I was supposed to fix something, but don't fix it too much because this is the very expensive website we just sold the client and it's failing and we kind of want to fix it, but we don't totally want to fix it because then how will we explain to the client the bad design we just did? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, you know, so, and, and, and what I was told at every meeting was stop trying to design things, just listen to people's ideas in the meeting and wireframe those ideas. And I said, you want a secretary? And, and I, I left after a month. So I think the problem is that, and this is why I have my new HR training, if I can mention that, and I make no money on it, so please let me mention it. it it's completely Absolutely, free. Yeah. I don't even put you on a mailing we'll, list. We'll put links to this and all your other stuff in the show notes. Eight, thank you. I've just released an eight-hour uh, HR training for HR recruiters, sourcers, talent agents, hiring managers, 
all these people who need to better understand who we are and what we do, that is one of the spokes in the wheel. One of the spokes in the wheel is our jobs are generally unreasonable and bizarre. And, and we know this from reading the job descriptions. I, I did a, a podcast on it where I read some of the wildest job descriptions I've seen so far, and I made icons for each full or part-time job they were trying to glue together. And now I have this cheat sheet of, of handy icons where I'm telling HR people, as you are building a CX or UX job, draw these icons and see if you've ended up with a reasonable job or an unreasonable job or a moving target that's going to have so many priority shifts, nobody will ever be doing the right thing at the right time. So part of the, part of the spoke and wheel and solution is HR needs to better understand what, what we do so that our jobs are reasonable, that we're not production designers, that we have autonomy, that we're able to estimate our own time, that we're involved in planning. We are highly strategic. And so to treat us as only tactical visual designers and not as problem-finding detective strategists is the lean sin of underutilized talent. Well, I mean, there's a corollary to that, right? There is tactical design work that has to get done, right? So sure. how how are you differentiating for them the difference between people who are going to come in, they're going to be doing some of that production work versus the people who are going to come in and doing more of the strategic thinking? My thought is that if you're if you need production work, hire a production designer. If you need pretty much anything else, then you are hiring somebody with CX or UX in their title. Typically, the production designer is somebody, and again, there's going to be different definitions of this, but most of the time where I've seen this title used, it is somebody who is realizing someone else's pre-existing vision. Hey, production designer marketing needs some ad banners, and they already know what they're going to say, and they kind of know what they're going to look like, and hey, we've got our branding in place. Can you make this thing? And I call it, in, my, in all of my, my uh, workshops and talks, I call it the difference between a short order cook and an interface scientist. The production designer, you can ask for bacon and eggs, and they're going to make you the absolute best bacon and eggs you've ever had because they're highly talented, skilled people who will do a much better job of this than I ever can. And then your interface scientists are the more scientific people who, who really want, who don't want to just say, hey, we've got this problem. Can you make me a better graph? I want to say, are we sure we need a better graph? What if the problem isn't the graph? I want to know what the problem is. I want to solve the right problem. Those are two just very different jobs, and we just have to make sure we're clear on which one we expect this person to be so that you and I stop getting hired into jobs that expect us to be order takers when we want to be problem finders and problem solvers. In, in your mind, is there a role in UX for that production designer, uh, or should everyone junior all the way up be playing that scientist role at some point, at some level? Um, both, uh, hypothetically both. So I definitely believe the production designer job is needed. I don't specifically see it as being a UX job because sometimes it's a marketing job or it's, it's some other thing. So I don't see it as being uh, specifically a UX job, but I believe that um, Anybody who is a researcher, an information architect, a content strategist, an interaction designer, I believe that those people should be st uh, strategic, uh, be especially because we have such a wealth of methodologies and approaches and 
uh, techniques that we can use, how do you know when to use which one? You know, it, I see a lot of people coming out of boot camps and they're like, and then I made personas. And I'm like, why do you make personas? And they're like, the boot camp said to, you know, we, we don't just do things because they're, they're, they're on a list somewhere. You, those of us now, if you're junior to, to UX, you probably tend to follow those lists or frameworks or canvases and you fill them in and you keep going. But as you've been working in UX for at least a a few years, I find people start to get more strategic. They start to be better at estimating their time. They start to be better at understanding which tasks we should do and how long they might take and why should I do observational research or interviews or something else. So I, I would like to see everybody be strategic, but I usually don't expect juniors and newbies to have that down yet. It comes with experience. Got it. Makes sense. I want to go back. You started talking about, we've hit on nomenclature a couple times, and I want to dive into that a little bit. Um, you know, in UX has been called many things over the years from, uh, let's see, going back, CHI, computer human interaction to human computer interaction to, you know, information architecture used to kind of be the umbrella term and then interaction design was sort of added onto it. And we've had user interface right, design, user interface, UI, UE, ease weren't cool. We went to UX, CX, uh, service design. Um, we and went from kind of having also calling people by individual disciplines, such as an inter information architect, interaction designer, visual designer, content strategist to the umbrella terms, UX designer, product designer, et cetera. Product How do you view <clears throat> sort of these shifts in nomenclature over time? Is this good for us? Has this been positive or detrimental? Yeah, I think the shifts in nomenclature are a little bit strange. And I know my answer is going to sound weird because I'm kind of calling for a shift in nomenclature. You know, I would I still think that that CX is a better term for us than UX, but that's only because UX, the definition of it changed somewhere along the way. That's like when people say to me, well, Deb, do, what do you think of the 1990s definition of design thinking? I say it doesn't matter what I think of the 1990s definition of design thinking. I live in the 2021 definition of design thinking. and I I'm not happy with that definition. I can't, I don't have a time machine. I can't go back in time to the early nineties when Don Norman supposedly coined user experience and make that one be well understood uh, by people inside of our world and outside of our world and make it respected and make it meaningful. Something happened along the way where it became non-meaningful. The example I usually give, and let me just roll over here for a moment, is uh, over here I keep the uh, handy, the license plate I had on my car in 2011. <laughs> this is the actual license plate I had on my car oh, in brilliant. 2011. Now, anybody who's hung out with me for three seconds or has watched my YouTube channel knows I hate the term UXUI because for the most part, it means a visual designer who likes to make wireframes or a product designer, which is usually a visual designer who likes to make wireframes. But I remember when this was meaningful, and that was about 2011 when I put this on my car and had people beeping on me on the 101 uh, up by San Francisco and people going, yeah. So the problem was in 2011, that meant the use and me's of the world. The people who approached user interface design, human computer interaction and user experience, research and design, with, with science, technique, and strategy. 
And somewhere in the 2010s, this changed. And then I started calling myself a product designer because I said, okay, I design products. I'll use the term product design. Embroidered it on all my jackets and everything. And then product design meant visual designers who like to make wireframes. So I find that there is this bizarre world where every time we have a term that seems to be meaningful, I don't know who to blame for this because it seems to happen around me and without me, but these terms appear to change what they mean. UI and UI design don't mean in 2021 what they did in 2011. And I don't know why. I don't know why these things are changing. And, and oddly, they never become more meaningful. They never become more respected. They never become more important. They become more misunderstood and more overused and more buzzwordy and whatever. I actually saw, and this is in my HR training, and I actually saw a UX research job at a very famous bank and the title of the job was Insight and Empathy Consultant. And I feel like that is going to be the next cra banana pants crazy direction that we go in, where we don't even say UX, we don't even say UI. It's just going to be empathy, which is just another pile of bull in the wheel. It's another spoke that, that, that is working against us. But... I think, I think these terms are working against us and it speaks to, we're not a young industry, but we look like a young industry, especially because we spend most of our time fighting each other on these terms. I would say, I feel like 40% of the posts I see on LinkedIn are, this is UX and this is UI. This is design thinking and this isn't design thinking. This is this and have this mindset. And I'm thinking, wow, imagine if we just knew who we were. It's like geology. Geology is geology. Or being a lawyer. No lawyer ever had to sit down and say, here's what being a lawyer is unless the person is five years old. We all at this point know what lawyers do and nobody can figure out what we do. And I think that our constant chasing of new terms is not helping us, which again is a little bit weird because I'm chasing a term, but at least I'm chasing a term that other people have been chasing for the last five or so years. And we're all hoping this one's going to stick, but I'm already wondering who's going to pull the football out from under me as I'm just about to kick it. And they're going to decide that CX is uh, uh, marketing people who like to make wireframes. I don't know. I made that up. Well, you know, and I agree with you. I've seen the same trend. I think that's one of the reasons we've had these progression of terms. Uh, you know, as, as they always start by meaning the entirety of the experience of someone who interacts with the brand. You know, and then they get kind of chunked down to be the interface, the software interface. And then it's like, well, that's not what we meant. So let's call it something new. So we and expand it again. Design. And it, it chunks. It's right. It gets chunked down again. You're totally right. So. We, we are always seeking the, the terms that are more encompassing, that, that do encompass service design and do encompass visual design and do encompass all these things. But I'm at the point now where most people on the planet who have heard of UX think it's um, artists who make pretty screens. And especially as a non-artist, I don't have an art school background. I don't have an art background. I'm a pretty terrible artist. And, and so 
I'm really come from more of that behavior psychology strategy side. So what about me? Um, you know, and people go, oh, well, everyone should know how to be an artist. I go, okay, tell Don Norman. If you know, if, you, if that had been the case, we might not have Don Normans and Larry Marines who probably were not the strongest artists on the planet. So I, I think that we can't keep pushing everything to be about artists, but I don't necessarily think it's the yous and me's who are pushing these things in these directions. I, I tend to think it's some of these books that come out, it's some conference speakers, and then it's the boot camps. I think a lot of people know about UX, UI, and UI, UX from all of these boot camps and online courses but they don't really understand, they, even they don't understand what we do, especially since nearly every course claiming to teach UX is, is teaching design thinking, whatever that is this week. For, for what it's worth, and I know this is general aside, my, a lot of my interaction design practice actually came out of my artwork, though I'm, I'm a terrible visual artist, as anyone who's seen my presentations can tell from the stick figures that I use in my slides, but the program I was in and the artwork I used to do was interactive and robotic sculpture and installation. And again, this is going back to the, the, the early to mid nineties. And there was this trend in the art world when there, when interactive art was, uh, you know, becoming more popular that there'd be the little plaque next to the artwork that told you how to interact with it. And I thought, well, that's BS, right? Either right. figuring it, it should be obvious or figuring it out as part of the experience. But if you if you tell me what I'm supposed to do, you sort of rob me of a part of the experience. And that's, that's why I took that that perspective in my artwork and that, that was uh, into the early um, web design work that I was doing in the mid 90s. Um, so exact same thing for me. I was a I was a music and pre-med major at Tufts University down the road from yeah. you. And uh, and I dumped the science after physics with calculus. I was like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a genetic researcher. And uh, luckily the entire family was like, yeah, we know, we, you're a musician. And so I graduated with a degree in music, but I'd been on computers since 1979. And so there I was in New York City in the uh, 1993, 1994, 1995, and I was working two jobs in New York City in the music business. And one day a friend of mine called me. Now I should also mention when I dumped pre-med, I had a hole in my schedule in university, so I started taking psych classes for fun. Mm. And I took psych one, I took psychology of music, and I took psychology of language, which ta taught Gestalt principles yeah. and some other things, which happened to be very influential. So 1995, early April 95, because tomorrow actually, as we're recording this, is the anniversary of my company. I, I started in 1995. So uh, that, that should get I'll a special starting, effect. What, year 27. There should be. You should have some kind of uh, get confetti for that. That's there we there go. go. That's worthy of celebration. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, uh, or, or this one maybe like I have been around forever. <laughs> me and the sun god. Um, so, uh, basically, um, friend calls me and he goes, Hey, there's this thing, the web, and like, you can make pages for it. And I'm like, what? And so I stayed up for a week teaching myself HTML. But then I said, I want to make websites based on the psych classes I just took. I want to make websites based on how people parse information. And that's where I started as a web designer in the mid nineties, which is very similar to your story. Yeah. I mean, I. I had, um, I don't think I've told this on the other podcast, but I had someone in the adult community come up to me and say, my company has some web work that needs to be done. Can you do it? And this was around 95. And I thought, I don't know anything about designing for, or coding for the web, but some of my 
friends in the art department are, are, are exploring using the web for their artwork. And I thought, well, it probably pays better than work study. So I just said yes. And, uh, and started a company as an undergrad and did that for a couple of years before, before moving on. Now we started in a very different world. The, the role was undefined. The titles were new, how it worked it was still very much evolving. And it's different for people starting now, and especially who are trying to break into the field. How do you see, like, what, I guess, what advice would you give uh, more junior folks or people who want to get into UX? How should they think about approaching it so they get off in a positive direction and they avoid some of these, these traps that you're pointing out? Yeah, that's been hard because right now I'm not seeing a lot of great programs out there. It's not like I can say, hey, everybody, please go to the Jeremy Kriegel School of UX. Wow, he really has an unbelievable program. He's got great mentoring and coaching. You're really going to learn there. I have not found a great boot camp. I have not found a great online course. I have not even found, I think out of university degrees, I've heard of one good master's degree, and I generally hear garbage about pretty much everything. So I understand that the traditional educational route is not shiny and glittery. And even Don Norman knows this. He released a paper, what, 14 months ago now, saying UX education, or as he calls it, design education is a disaster. And he's working with 600 people to try to improve it. And so I figured, ah, sit back and wait and see what Don Norman does. Why should I get too involved here? He's got it. Um, but, you know, he's moving at an academic pace, um, which means it's rather thorough and rigorous. Um, and it, I don't know when he's going to come out with something. So the downside for juniors is I don't have the magic bullet program to tell you to go to. I do tell everybody, find a mentor or coach who is going to review your work constantly in cycles, cycles, cycles. Did you write a research plan? I want to see it. Your questions stink. Let's talk about why. Try again. Now show me your questions again. They're better. Let's look at it again. I mean, this is the type of education that we need because it's a very learn by doing thing, in my opinion. Some of it is book smarts, and we can learn about HCI and behavior, behavioral economics, psychology, cognitive psych, but then there's just the doing. And that's really where you're going to know if UX is right for you, which aspect of UX is good for you, because not, ev not everyone's going to be good at everything and not everyone's going to enjoy everything. So I think working with a mentor or coach who can constantly review your work in cycle, cycle, cycles is the best way to go. And of course, apprenticeships. I'm now doing apprenticeships at my agency and I'm, I'm suggesting apprenticeships. I put out an apprenticeship model. It's on the deltacx.com website. And of course, it's it's also free. Use it, improve on it, make it better, do something because we, in five years, who's going to be our seniors? As far as I can tell, in five years, our seniors will be visual designers who like to make wireframes. And that doesn't bode well for an industry that was born in critical thinking, deductive reasoning, and problem finding over anything else. Yeah, and I want to be clear, and I think I know we, we've talked about this, and I know you agree. The visual design is important. It's just not the entirety yes. of the process. So if you're only focusing on the visual right. design, you're missing out on a lot of other things that would help you realize the full benefit that you could be providing and that the organization could be realizing. Look, nobody loves visual designers more than I do because I am a terrible one. So whenever anybody thinks like you're pooping on visual designers, I need 
need you. <laughs> I, I crumble without you. This in no way is meant to put down visual designers. You have a unique set of talents and skills that I could never in a million years have. And people have said to me, oh, Deb, just take some art classes. I'm sure you'd be good at it. And I go, no, I have the self-awareness to know that I have low talent. You know how some people are never going to be great singers? I know I'm never going to be a great artist. And that's okay. That's why I work with great artists. I hire great artists and I appreciate them. But I also know that the core of UX, while visual design is important and an important component of that, and we need you visual designers, but I think at too many jobs, we are skimping on or skipping so much of the research and instead we replace it with some sort of weirdo workshop where everybody gets in a room with sticky notes and they try to guess at what people are doing and I think this is part not all but part of why we have such terrible products right now that and, and MVPs in my opinion are part of why they're there it's so hard if I say to you Jeremy Tell me about some apps or systems, websites that you freaking can't live without because they are good. They're easy to use. They help you solve your, accomplish your tasks quickly. They were easy to learn and use. Hashtag not sponsored. Who do you think of? Oh boy. Um, one of the, actually, yeah, exactly. there's, there's maybe an iPhone app <laughs> or two, but, and in fact, those are made by right. small publishers and they're very niche. Um, most right. things we've adapted to. It's very to. rare. We're used to the garbage, but that's that's not going to be forever. Our standards are getting higher, yeah. not lower. So sure, we've, we're all living in a garbagey, just ship it, speed over quality world, but we're eventually we're going to fall off that cliff where that's not good enough for people. That's not good enough for the up and coming generations. Maybe your generation, my generation, we're, we're almost the same generation. The people older than we are, we all learn to just put up with it and just figure it out. But today's 20-somethings and 30-somethings, things I don't think they necessarily want that and I don't think they grew up with that and so eventually that's going to fall off the cliff and the minimum viable thing is not going going to be a match it's barely a match to what customers need now I think in the future it is definitely not going to be a match and and the difference will be somebody will notice it and they'll speak up instead of this culture of fear and silence where we don't want to stop the agile train because the agile train is running and let's not tell everybody this sucks Debbie, you just mentioned MVPs. So how do you see MVPs working well and where do you see the challenges and how would you change them with the teams that you work with? Or how would you suggest other people look to change it, how they work with MVPs? I said MVPs way too many times. Yeah, there, thanks but for ahead. asking. <laughs> That's okay. Right. Now it doesn't mean anything. Um, so, um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that one, actually. And I've, I, I've debuted some of them in my new talk for this year, which is improving agility by using customers' definitions of quality and done. Imagine that. And um, so, first of all, the MVP. The main thing that's wrong with it, though I have a list, the main thing that's wrong with it is that... <clears throat> It typically does not match the customer's needs, the customer's expectations, and the customer's tasks. Usually it's somebody else's perception of what's the least we could put out there and call this a product or a feature or call it done. And the problem is we're not using the customer's definitions of quality or done. We're just using an agile coach's definition or the scrum master's definition. We're going, yeah, it's working code. Yeah, put it out there. But is it what people need? 
So, but I think the concept of the MVP makes sense. I know that the original concept of the MVP was you're not going to know if your product is going in the right direction until you put it in front of your real or potential customers and you get feedback from them. But to me, that's what the user-centered design process is all about. Like this is where we would be such a wonderful partner and we would be able to do that research, create those prototypes, run those tests and be able to tell people way before they burned time and money on engineering and of course increased the companies and projects uh, risk and, and waste. Because if we're lean, we want to cut waste. So I think that if we utilized user-centered design or human-centered design and that full process more, we can be true to the MVP and we can put out something that maybe is a, a little bit more stripped down if it must be, but then let UX people say to you, yes, this matches what people need and it's a great execution of a great idea or holy cats. This isn't a match to what people need because we didn't go far enough with it. We, we didn't prioritize enough of the features or stories or, or something else. So um, I just did uh, one of my new slides that I just ran at both of my new talks was <clears throat> both for the agile coaches and scrum, scrum masters and the marketing people was I put up a graph and the graph kind of imagines, it guesses at how much risk and cost a company is incurring as we go deeper into our projects from the early planning and concept where we haven't spent too much money yet, it's easy to change our mind, all the way through the user-centered design process into engineering where now we've spent, we're really invested in what this is, we're spending time, we're spending money, now maybe at some point marketing is you know, getting ready. They yeah. are running their gears and marketing says we are getting ready for this. Marketing is spending time and money. I put up a graph that kind of imagines these, uh, you know, with unlabeled axes and says like, look, you're just going up, 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 up in risk and cost. And I ask the audience, draw a dot on this graph when you would like to know that our product might be going in the wrong direction. And almost everybody drew their dots between early planning and CX design, you know, final, finalizing the CX design. <clears throat> nobody drew a dot in engineering, nobody drew a dot in marketing. They want to know early. But then at these same companies, we're treated as the pair of hands that are gonna make it pretty and just put a blue button over there. And so there's a huge disconnect between what I believe teams and products and, and portfolio and program and whatever you're doing, what they want to do and what they are doing. And, and some of that I blame on Agile and some of these methodologies when implemented badly. We are so, so shooting for <clears throat> assembly line efficiency and speed that we've forgotten that our highest priority is supposed to be customer satisfaction and continually measuring that. So I think we can be Agile and we can be a little bit truer to some of the core root love that the MVP was shooting for, which was, hey, don't put out too much because maybe people won't be happy with it. Well, hold on. We don't have to put out the least we could do. We can put out a decent release, but let's utilize user-centered design, human-centered design, and the people who specialize in it to make sure that we are not releasing garbage because the, the, the way that I draw it on the graph is I say, here's where Agile thinks you should find out if your product is good or not after release. After all of this time and cost and risk and marketing and customer support, 
that's that's where most agilists seem to think we need to learn if this is the right product for customers. But way back over here, UX could know. And I think if companies understood that, we would start to break apart the evil hub and spoke wheel. You know, I, I think there are, like, again, an agile process run well, and maybe that's the caveat. When these things aren't done well, it's <clears throat> incremental design and release. It's not iterative. Um, you know, and I kind of look at, if you look at, I often do like a two a, a two by two matrix because you always need those. Um, what's your level of, of of uncertainty, and what's the cost of being wrong? And if you're if uncertainty is high, and it's expensive to be wrong, you better be doing some validation because you could really be screwed in the end. You know, if you're fairly Absolutely. confident, of course we tend to be overconfident, and it's cheap to be wrong. Well, maybe you can experiment with that and see how it works. And I think that's that's one sure. way I find it helpful to model. And I think another dimension to look at is how quickly can you iterate and how quickly will you iterate? For teams that are doing yes. a, a bunch of work and they put it out there, whether they're running in sprints <laughs> or you know Kanban or whatever, they do a bunch of work, they put it out there, and then they don't measure it, they don't learn, they move on to something else. That also just, again, not really intent behind MVP. It was that we we're going to put something basic out there so we can learn from it and iterate on it. But if you're not learning and iterating, you know, you're going to look back and go, well, our product's crap. How did we get there? This agile thing sucks. Well, you, you were, you were doing, you were going through the motions, but you didn't have the intent. And you didn't follow through with yeah. the intent. I see so many people who are so far away from the <clears throat> original Agile Manifesto principles or really from anything that looks like customer centricity. Yeah. I don't understand all of this non-customer centricity because ultimately we're building for the customer. And if we keep excluding the customer from research, excluding the customer from our process, excluding them from all this stuff, and we're releasing guesses, that doesn't seem agile. That doesn't seem lean. That Six Sigma would, would weep for you. <clears throat> it doesn't really make sense for any of these things that people are claiming to be other than, ooh, we shipped fast. Congratulations, you're not two people in a co-working space in San Francisco. You know, congratulations, you're fast. But it's not, you know, you read the wrong book for the business you're in. So <clears throat> I think that there's hope for this type of methodology and approach. Uh, the, the things related to agile, I, I'm generally for them, but I want to see the customer centricity baked back in because at pretty much everywhere I've seen or coached or worked at or talked to, it just seems like, well, we just have to go faster, faster, faster. And if we, know, when I speak at agile and engineering conferences, I say, hands up. How many of you have been coding something and you knew while you were coding it that it was going to be garbage for the user? And every hand goes up. Yeah. <clears throat> and and that's it. Every co I spoke at, what, 50 conferences in 2019? I saw this over and over in every country. So we have some sort of weird cultural problem, which DevOps thought they were going to fix, but but hasn't been able to yet where we have a culture of fear and silence and, and despite Agile claiming we want to change early, everybody's afraid to stop the Agile train. Yeah, that, that's a really fascinating thing. I, was, I talked about this in some prior organizations. You know, in the Toyota Lean, there was that concept of the Andon cord, right? That you could, anyone, if they saw a quality problem, could pull the cord, stop the production line, which brought everyone together to figure out what the problem was, fix it before they started okay. up production again. And it seems like there doesn't, 
there isn't the safety within a lot of organizations for people to feel like they can raise their hand and say, we need to stop or slow down because what we're going to, what we're doing or what we're about to do is going to be detrimental to the organization, the customer or something else. Or both. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, that's a cultural thing. If there is a culture that says you can F up your sprint, you can release garbage, you can you can have a wonderful recurring cadence of garbage, and uh, in three months, marketing will send out an NPS survey, and maybe we'll learn if people are happy, and we won't even know what they're happy about or not. You know, this is not the way. This is uh, reactive. This is really late in the game. And, and I feel like so much of this is going wrong just so that we can claim that we were fast and efficient, fast and efficient, high velocity productivity. And all of these things were modeled after assembly lines and factories. That's fine. We're humans. And to try to, uh, I think agile is going to need an adjustment where it is readjusted for humanity and for customer centricity. Well, I think in some ways there was sort of a, there was an evolution and I've looked at this at three, like there was this teams where they couldn't deliver anything reliably at all. So it's like, <clears throat> we need to do something just so we can get stuff out the door predictably. And then organizations seem to stop there as opposed to going to the next level is let's get something valuable out the door predictably. And that valuable part hasn't made it into, I think a lot of, a lot of organizations, um, uh, process. I think the definition of value tends to come from the engineers. I have found that when the engineers find working code, it it passed user acceptance uh, criteria or user acceptance testing, it, it matches the requirements. Well, then this must be quality and it must be done. Get it out the door. And meanwhile, the UX people are crying and polishing up their resumes and, and go into HR. So, you know, I think there's a real breakdown here. I think Agile has not brought UX in the way it should. I think we're still very siloed sometimes thanks to Agile. And many Agile coaches, not all of course, but many Agile coaches and Scrum Masters I've spoken to have told me, we don't really need UX people. We're just going to have the engineers read a UX book and then they can make the screens. And, and I think that this goes back to the hub and spoken wheel problem. When I have a scrum trainer, someone who is one of the biggest trainers of scrum on the planet telling me, hey, the scrum team can do UX work. You guys have easy work anybody can do. I said, like what? And he said, paper prototypes. And that's where I roll out my phases of proficiency model. He thinks that because he can make a paper prototype that he must be really good at UX. And I said, but there's a difference between getting work done and getting it done well. Don't we care about getting it done well? And he actually said, no, I just need to get the work done. Oh, yeah. So I, and now it might be just him, but I've heard things like that before from other people. Not every agile coach or, or scrum trainer is going to be like this, but I do believe there is an over-focus on getting things done and trying to show efficiency and velocity, especially to leadership and creating quality, quality for the customer, quality for the customer where they won't have to go complain to customer support and tweet about it, quality for the customer where we won't have to fix or undo it later. All right, I wanna ask you two questions and, and you can choose to answer one or both of them. Um, both. If you've got them, great. So one would be, do you have any thoughts on how to start moving organizations more in this quality direction? Or how would you, how would you 
advise people who are looking to join organizations to what questions could they ask to help them evaluate whether or not they're about to join an organization that is is going to be embracing UX or is going to be hostile or neutral to towards UX? Okay, I wrote those down. Um, so, le so let's answer the easy one first, which is the second one. So when it comes to people who are interviewing and looking for a job, there are some questions that we can ask during that process to try to figure out what's going on. And really, you've got to just put on your, your UX hat. Everybody who watches my channel knows my critical thinking hat. So put on your critical <laughs> thinking hat. Uh, never take it off, unlike me. And you can ask things like, um, when do we, when do we do UX research? Who researches with customers? Um, you know, cause right, very often you'll hear, oh yeah, the engineers ask people what they want. Well, you may or may not want to work there. So I would say some of the good questions you can ask would be around who does research and how is that research later excuse me, utilized, uh, what kinds of time are, are research individuals or teams given to do research with, with users, customers, or potential ones. Now, I've also heard from people, I asked that and they lied to me. So remember that just because you ask a good question doesn't mean you get an honest answer. That is the downside. So you got to super extra have your detective hat on to try to read if that person could be lying. Uh, remember, you can always go to LinkedIn and dig up someone who works now or used to work at that company in a UX capacity. They might not have been from the same team or department you're interviewing with, but you can certainly ask them, what was it like there? Why did they leave? And I find that many of us do not, we don't act as competitors. We act as friends. If a stranger comes to me and says, I see you worked at Thingy, what do you think of that? I'll give them an honest answer. I've got nothing to lose. What are they going to say? Ha, I'm really from there and you badmouthed me. It's like, well, you sucked. So <laughs> try not sucking. Um, so I think we can ask about how research informs decisions and, and interaction design and things like that. Um, that. That would be some of the core because that seems to be where things go the wrongest. Um, you know, I, be, otherwise, without the research, we have... Uh, people with designer titles who are just asked to guess at stuff. And so that's bad, and you probably don't want that. So I think questions around how research is done, who does the research, uh, and see if that matches your ideals for research. Um, as for, knowing that they might lie to you, as for the other question, which is how do we move organizations more towards quality? I think it's something that's going to happen in the next couple of years. I think like now is the time for more voices like yours and mine, Darren, Dr. Nick, and some of the other people who are out there saying we have to save UX. It's, it's close, but it's not too late. I, I think that as these voices increase, we have to take aim at everything in the hub and the spokes. So shifting organizations towards quality means baking customer centricity into everything. And, and to me, the accountability is key. If I'm going to come into a job as a UX whatever, and I'm not going to be held accountable for doing good work or bad work, or nobody there can recognize good work from bad work, then that means Anybody could have been in this job. My dog could have been in the job. And so I think that the accountability is going to be key, but I think that 
finding more ways to bake in the customer centricity from from corporate strategy, from early planning of epics, features, projects, whatever it might be. We have to stop acting like, this isn't the 50s, this isn't, hey, I don't care if customers want it, I think I know what they want, and you build this, and we'll find out later if they like it or not. This, this ain't that anymore. We can't do that. That's dinosaur world. We claimed we were leaving that behind when we walked away from waterfall, but now we're still doing that kind of crap. So I think that to move towards quality, we have to find ways to bake customer centricity and true care for customers' tasks, needs, and experiences at every level. The code doesn't ship if it isn't accessible and usable by people with a variety of disabilities or issues. The code doesn't ship if the colorblind can't use it. We have to bake customer centricity into everything. Marketing stops sending people ridiculous emails, I have a whole bunch of slides on this, that, that, uh, that clearly were just, I, my, the short version is, I'm a woman in my 40s, I purposefully never have ki had kids, but I cannot tell you how much marketing BS I get that's like, happy Mother's Day, and it's back to school time, and your children are at college, and they want your money, send them money, they can't do their laundry. And it's like amazingly lazy buckets. We have to get away from buckets, lazy buckets, because now lazy buckets are in some cases an insult. In some cases, they're racist. In some cases, they're sexist. And I think that, that we have to get away from, from all of the domains in our company that are still using old-fashioned approaches that aren't customer-centric. If you really are customer-centric, and especially if you want to pretend you had empathy, then you really have to do the research to make sure we know customers and we're not guessing about them or assuming. To stop guessing and assuming, all of it right now stops. Thank you, back to Jeremy. Man, there's two, two things I really want to dive into there. Um, Go for it. You you just brought up you know, diversity and inclusion, which has been you know, a huge theme. How do you feel the, that UX is doing as a whole in terms of improving our practices to, to be more inclusive in how we design and the, the, the products we design, both like both the process and the, and the results? Yeah, I think that's where we fall down that fake empathy hole a little bit because I've heard from people like, um, hey, if I research with these communities or these people, now I get them. Now I have empathy for them. And I say, well, hold on. You understand some piece of their world or some piece of their experience, but let's not have the ego to believe that we truly or deeply understand these people. We are not necessarily feeling along with them as the original definition of empathy goes. So I think some of this empathy stuff, like uh, people think if you care about someone, you have empathy. They're technically not the same thing. Right. But I think if, as I say, if we cared about people, we would stop giving them garbage. If we cared about people, we wouldn't build these things that don't make sense to them. And when I think about some of these, uh, the, the diversity and inclusive things, why so often are we researching and testing on people that are, that are non-disabled? It doesn't make sense. We have to start testing with larger pop researching and testing with po larger populations of people that include disabilities. I spoke to one disability agency about a year ago, and I think they said they recommend eight people 
they recommend like two people with sight issues, two people with speech issues, two people with mobility issues, and two people who might have cognitive issues or um, or, or mental illness or something. I have the list somewhere, but but just ask them. These people know. Go ask the people who are are accessibility experts. I, I'm just slightly knowledgeable, and so. We, we claim that we care about these people, we claim we have empathy, and then we don't include them in the process. So if we want to say inclusion in diversity and inclusion, we have to include these people. We have to hire them. Uh, in my HR training, and I called these companies out, in my HR training, I have screenshots of jobs, UX jobs, where they were actually had discrimination written into the job. One was ageist that in the example I give, and the other actually said, you cannot apply if you cannot use a keyboard and a mouse simultaneously. Oh, and I yeah. stopped and thought about it. I put on my critical thinking hat and I said, when is the only time I've had to use a keyboard and a mouse simultaneously? And I said, holding down shift while clicking and dragging in Photoshop. <laughs> but other than that, I couldn't think of when I'm using a keyboard and a mouse simultaneously. So I thought this was garbage. This was garbage that's designed to drive away someone who has accessibility needs. And another example was on LinkedIn, and I put it in my training. Uh, a woman, uh, an autistic uh, woman working in UX had to take a emotional intelligence tests, test that asked her to match uh, pictures of faces with what emotion they're displaying. Mm. Are we sure we want to go there? Or is that still diverse, equal, and inclusive? Who are we trying to weed out there? If you're trying to weed out the autistic people, you suck. And let's not do that. And we welcome them in UX. So I think that, that definitely... Diversity and inclusion right now is still very much theater. We're in the theater and the fake empathy phase with it, and more people have to speak up and, and give people some actionable advice on how to really include these people. I, I From the people I mentor, it looks like every Fortune 100 company right now is reaching out to every black person they can find on LinkedIn and asking them to apply for jobs. Okay, that's something, but then it also looks a little strange yeah. too. And then you have HR referring to black people as non-traditional talent. Well, this is effed up. This isn't okay. Black people aren't non-traditional talent. They're people. There's nothing non-traditional about them. They're talent. They're wonderful. Freaking hire them. And, and so I think there's still a lot of wording and other things that are legacy that we, we have to get rid of because I think we're still in diversity and inclusion theater. And remember that only, what, 70% of us actually want diversity and inclusion? The other 30% want racism and supremacy? So, um, you know, we have to remember that that's a hard one to battle in the real world and in our jobs because we're not all on the same page about what that looks like. Yeah, and some of that stuff, it's amazing that it's still going on. It's the more egregious, but even on the more subtler side, you were talking about research. And in one of the, the sessions that I hosted as uh, part of the Agile Online Summit, I was doing interviews around building, uh, building inclusive products was the track name. And I believe it was Nicole Rafuku who did me the kindness of pointing out that as a researcher, if I was a researcher, there are people who will not share their complete story with me because I don't share their background, I don't share their experience. 
And so they wouldn't feel comfortable doing so. So as great a facilitator as I might be, I'm all right. Um, because of who I am and my biases and my identity, there are people who won't be completely honest with me. So we have to look at, you know, that, that also just makes us rethink how we build our teams, how we connect with, with different people that we're trying to serve. Well, it reminds me even of the simplest thing. When, if uh, back, back when it was safe to see humans before the pandemic, I was a bit of a spa junkie and I liked to go to spas and do the spa thing. And um, I don't do the beauty thing, as everyone can tell, but I enjoy the spa thing. And so, uh, and so I got really into online spa booking and I got really picky about different systems and, ooh, I don't want to use this system. It's hard to book and whatever. But in the, even in the spa world, you'll find if you're getting a massage or a certain treatment where someone's going to touch you, it will ask, do you prefer a male or a female? But yet we don't usually do that in research. And I actually did that last year. Hmm. So I was working on a research project where we were doing an observational study of what ended up being 71 people, 71 remote observational sessions on Zoom. And I set up my online calendar system and I use Acuity, hashtag not sponsored. They are imperfect. I have a Zapier zap to create a workaround because, oh my God. But outside of that, I love Acuity. And I set up Acuity so that when people got to the booking page, they were offered book with Debbie, book with a man, who I won't name, or book by your preferred time and we'll assign you mm. somebody. And my system reported to me that 50% of people chose one of us deliberately and 50% booked by time. And I remember one of the women I spoke to, um, she said, when I saw your picture, I just had the feeling you would understand me. So we actually put oh, up our pictures. fascinating. So, so yeah, so I've been doing wacky stuff like this and, um, and I will do it again. I will put up a picture of us and I will put our first names and I will give people a choice of, do you want to talk to a man or a woman? Now we're both white, so I'm not going to pretend this was diverse. It's not, but, but we did give people at least a gender choice and, and people could either make that gender choice or they could just pick by time in the system, assign them whoever had that time open. And, and I think things like that are, are just interesting considerations and possibilities for the future where maybe you have people of different uh, genders, identities, ethnicities, and people pick who they're comfortable with. And this came up in my Slack um, workspace recently because um, a, a woman in Australia of, uh, I think, Indian or Southeast Asian descent was running a research study with like a plumber or something. And out of nowhere, the plumber started saying anti-Indian things like, you know, my work was pretty good until you people came in. And she was like, who's you people? And uh, unbelievable stuff. And, and hypothetically, you want to end that session and not pay that person. But if you thought you could get some good information from that person, even though they were racist, then maybe you give that person a choice of interviewer. Wow, amazing. Um and unbelievable, amazing in the hard to believe <laughs> sense. I know it hurts. <laughs> I, I want to shift. I want to hit one more topic, which will hopefully bring us full circle. Um, I know we All could, right. we could go on for a long, long time, but I want to be re respectful of your time and everyone who's <laughs> listening. You started off this conversation by talking about how accountability was one of the things you're pushing for. And I had wanted to ask you then, 
specifically what do you want to be accountable for who's accountable for that now and is that something that we need to fight for that accountability or do people want to give it up and i've seen both sides right sometimes people want no accountability they don't want to be blamed and sometimes people feel that that their accountabilities is their power so kind of curious how you how you react to that yeah, my thought is um, if we had accountability, chances are people would stop trying to do my job. People from outside of UX would stop saying, oh, I, I can sketch some screens, you know, that'll be fine. Or I'm going to overrule Deb's design ideas and run with my own. And my thought is if we were holding this accountable, because many times, and, and this may have happened to you, but many times when that has happened, the project experienced some failure because of the ideas that, that were run with when, when instead of what I was trying to do. Nothing happened to that person. The company wasted tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and all kinds of weeks or months and nothing happened to that person. Now I'm not saying they, they need to be fired immediately, but I think that if there were accountability and if bad UX, you know, I always talk about the four horsemen of bad UX, my registered trademark, frustration, confusion, disappointment, and distraction. Um, if we could be held accountable for, for creating those for people, I think a lot of people who aren't specialists in our area would back off because I don't try to make decisions in product. I don't try to make decisions in engineering. I don't barge my way into marketing and go, no, this is what you need to do. But that's happening to us. And I find in a lot of workplaces, many of us allow it because we, we have this like third grade sit at the lunch table problem where we think we should just let people do this and then they're going to really value what we do. Well, no, they're not going to value it because they're, they're bulldozing us. They're trying to do it. I want all these people held responsible. I want heads to roll. I want people to get in trouble. Maybe there's some sort of mysterious black mark on your HR file or whatever. It, and I want to be held accountable. If I design something that ends up bad, I want to be held accountable. <clears throat> Maybe I'm not immediately fired, but question one to me should be, did you get the time and budget and headcount and resources you needed to do a better job? If you did, you did a bad job. If you got everything you needed to do a good job and you did a bad job, we need to look at, are you bad at this? Because let's face it, there are a lot of UX practitioners out there who are fake it till you make it. They're not good at UX either at all or just not yet. So we have to find those people and either get them some help or move them to a different job. That's, I know that's controversial, but I think that's part of what's dragging us down. If anybody can do UX, that's what we've got right now. Anybody is doing UX. Congratulations. How it's, how's it going? So I want to see more accountability. I want it to be possible. If, I bet if you wrote bad code time and time again, eventually somebody notices and fires you. But who can you think of who has been fired from a UX job for being bad at UX and creating poor designs that they either never tested out of their own genius design or they tested badly and they wanted to ship them anyway? We have to hold people accountable. And again, don't fire everybody immediately, but we have to, then we get at the root causes. Is Debbie just bad at this and she needs to go back to apprentice universe or 
Is Debbie good at this and she's not getting what she needs to do the job? We call those retros, but nobody in a retro is asking me if I got what I needed this sprint. I mean, I guess I never feel like we have enough time, money, resources to the work, and it's always a, a an adaptation compromise. compromise. What do we have and how can we get as close as possible given our current set of constraints? Uh, and I, I've always, I think I've always accepted that as a sort of reality that, and maybe I'll be lucky at one point, we'll have the time and resources it necessary. Is. But UX getting microscopic leftover crumbs of time after engineering decided, I want 8 million sprints and UX, you get the seven minutes that are left over. I think that we, we can't do that that way anymore. And the problem is so many of us are so happy to have a job and to have somebody to ask us to do a thing that we have completely lowered our standards and we've lost our voices. We have to stand up, we have to speak out, we have to do what we used to do before everything shifted on us a few years ago. Many of us remember these times. Some people don't, but you and I do. And we we have to be those advocates. We have to be the advocate for the customer. And we have to be the advocate for ourselves. You know, I do see the flip side. There are a lot of organizations that the reason they're talking to me and that, that I have joined in the past was what non-UX disciplines we're creating wasn't meeting the organizational needs. And they still might not have had... Right a great idea of exactly what this UX thing was, but they kind of had at least enough sense to say, I think we need more of that to get us where we need to go. All right, well, Debbie, this has been fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you you joining and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge, yay. <laughs> I don't Thank you. Uh, for those of you who are listening audio only, you're missing all the visual sound effects. Uh, Debbie, if people are not... I, I do have a sound of... I only have one, one sound, sound effect. effect. It sounds like this. Oh, I think you can't hear it. I changed the oh, microphone. Okay. It's like lackluster applause. Lackluster applause. All right, we can just do our own, uh, our own there. If people are not already following you online, what would be the best channels to find you? Yeah, I'm not a multi-channels person. I mostly live on YouTube where I've got the Delta CX uh, universe and you can subscribe there and I've got all the ads turned off so it should be a pleasant uh, customer-centric experience. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn where I'm Debbie Levitt and I look like this with a little more Photoshop so you should be able to easily find me. Um, also, for people audio only, it's D-E-B-B-I-E. L-E-V-I-T-T, -T, two T's. Um, and I'm not much of a tweeter or an Instagrammer or the like. Um, my website's deltacx.com um, and we've got our own Slack workspace, of course, but you can find all that from the other worlds. I would say, please come join me on YouTube where I go live, I think at this point, five times a week. That's amazing. So there's something- You give a lot you. back to the There's something nearly every day I'm trying to to engage with with fun people, and it's working. Um, I'm live uh, almost every day at 6:30 p.m. my time. I live in Europe. That is 12:30 p.m. for the Jeremys on the east coast of America. So adjust for your time. Um, but uh, but you can also go to. Uh, I've also got a calendar up with all the things we're doing. So um, come find me there. And and thanks again to Jeremy for having me on and talking through these the, through the hubs and the spokes. We will put links to all of that in the show notes. You can find the show notes at sux.live. That's sux for saving ux. Uh, so all the, the places to find Debbie, as well as links to all the different things that we talked about during the conversation, it'll all be there at sux.live. 
So if you like this, please subscribe as you catch all of the future episodes and you can go to sux.live to catch past episodes as well. And with that, again, one final thank you and not lackluster, genuinely appreciative applause for, for Debbie Levitt. Thanks again for joining. Back at you. Thank you.